Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, Podbean, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming and you want to hear my patron-only lectures, including my last one about the Nag Hammadi Library and the Gnostic Gospels, please go to my Patreon page and sign up at any level, even if it's just a dollar. So I want to discuss the origins and the foundations of the civilization of India, which is outside of my field. My own research is about early America, but I did take some classes on India, and my aim is just to give a basic overview to help people understand the nature, the dynamics of civilization in South Asia and where it came from. And I think that today I'm going to talk about the political and social development of this civilization, which is a complex story with many different succeeding eras. And then I think I'll save for another lecture a discussion of Hinduism. What is it and how did it evolve and come about in the same basic era that I'm going to talk about now? But I'm going to save those sort of complex questions of what are Hindu beliefs? What does Hinduism constitute? I'll save that for later. So just to explain what are we talking about? Well, naturally, there is a lot of ambiguity when we use the word India. It refers to both a geographic country and also a distinctive civilization. And I want to try to explain how one eventually gave rise to and fostered the other. When we say India today, we tend to refer to a specific nation state, the Republic of India, with certain borders. But historically, older names, forerunners of this name India, such as Hind or Bharata, refer to a wider area, which includes most of what's now Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, and other neighboring countries. And so it can be taken to encompass all or most of what we today call South Asia. And that's a region with a sort of natural geographic unity. It's basically the southern shield of Asia between the Himalayan mountains and the Indian Ocean. And it's more or less synonymous with what we also call the Indian subcontinent. So when we speak about ancient civilization in India, we might refer to that whole region, which is bounded on the one hand to the west and the northwest by the plateaus of Persia and Afghanistan, or Hindu Kush, as it's sometimes been called, the Himalayas to the north, the mountains of Southeast Asia to the east, and the Indian Ocean to the south. So there's a sort of naturally delimited region that, although it can have contacts with the outside world around it, it is also basically isolated. The unity of this region is caused by plate tectonics. So the nature of South Asia and its geography is easier to understand if you know that India rests upon its own separate tectonic plate apart from the rest of Eurasia. And this landmass was once its own separate small continent out in the middle of an ocean. But in the prehistoric age, probably about 50 to 80 million years ago, this continent began to move rapidly northward. 
and its speed was maybe about a mile per thousand years or so, which sounds slow to us in human time, but actually is lightning speed in geologic time. It started rapidly moving northward, and about 40 to 50 million years ago, it slammed into the southern side of Eurasia. And this was a massive impact, releasing enormous energy. The northern edge of this Indian plate basically struck and then burrowed under Asia. And this caused an enormous upwelling of the Asian plate, pushing upward and creating the Himalayan mountains, which of course today are the highest mountains on Earth. And in some ways, this impact is still unfolding and releasing energy today. So northern India and the Himalayas are still seismically active, and the Himalayas are still slowly pushing upward at a speed of about one centimeter per year, but they're also eroding down from wind and snow at about the same pace. So by today, the Himalayas have maybe about reached a sort of uh, a peak and point of stability in terms of their height. So this ancient impact between India and Asia created the complex topography of the Indian subcontinent. So if we look over all of South Asia, say we begin from the Indian Ocean, where the landmass originally came from, and we approach India from the south, from the ocean, going northward. Well, we'd start with the island, large island of Sri Lanka, which is simply a high area of this Indian plate. Then we cross to the mainland, and first at that southern end of India, we have the very high Deccan Plateau, which in many places is quite rugged. And basically around the edges of this plateau, there are areas that have been eroded into steep cliffs and escarpments and even formed mountains called the Ghats. There are the Eastern and Western Ghats. But these, these mountains are not created by a seismic impact like the Himalayas or the Andes. They're simply the result of the erosion of this high plateau. If we then proceed northward, the land slopes down to a central plateau which is somewhat lower and in some places flat and in other places hilly. And then if we continue northward of that, it slopes down to the Indo-Gangetic Plain, which is a long belt of low flat plains, many of them very fertile, that are drained in the west by the large Indus River in what's today Pakistan. And then it arcs over to the east where it is drained by the enormous Ganges River, which is one of the most massive rivers in the world, the third most massive in terms of the water that it discharges following only the Amazon and the Congo. And so, especially in the eastern Ganges Plain, you have very well-watered, lush, green, flat landscapes and very fertile for farming. Then, of course, north of the Indo-Gangetic Plain, the land rises very dramatically up into the Himalayas and this tremendous mountain chain that has its name, Himalayas, from the word for abode of snow. So that's the basic topography. The climate of South Asia is generally warm and wet, and the low-lying areas are tropical. In fact, the Tropic of Cancer cuts right through the middle of India. And the seasons are 
complex. There's a complex seasonal cycle. It is not a simple alternation of winter and summer like one is used to in the Western Hemisphere. Rather, the climate is governed by the shifting winds on the Indian Ocean, which are called the monsoons. So when we in the West hear the word monsoon, we tend to think of rainstorms, but that's a bit of a misunderstanding. It means the entire climate cycle governed by these oceanic winds. And so there are three main seasons in India, the cool season, the hot season, and the rainy season. And the rain usually arrives, the monsoon rains, as they're properly called, because, you know, the other seasons are monsoon as well. Uh, They usually arrive in late May or early June, and customarily they're welcomed for breaking the heat of the hot season. And it is traditional for the newspapers and news programs in India to always report when the first rains reach Kerala, down at the far southwestern corner of India, because it is understood that that heralds the arrival of the rains for the rest of the country. And they usually sweep northeastward across the country, but they do not water the whole country evenly. There is a variation where, in general, the northern and especially western areas are more dry and the eastern areas are more wet. So in the west, especially the northwest, there are some scrubby, drier areas and even some desert, the so-called Tar Desert, along the border of what's now India and Pakistan. Whereas there are tropical rainforests in some areas, especially in the far south and east. And so naturally, there's also a variation in the main food crops that are grown in the different regions. And if you look just at the grain crops, much more rice is grown in the east, where there is that richly watered flat land, whereas there is more wheat, millet, and sorghum grown in the west, where it's more dry. So that's the basic layout. And then just so you know, because these words will keep coming up, What are some of the main important political regions and provinces of South Asia? Because some of these terms might be more recent, but they are necessarily used to describe the different places where civilizational events have happened in South Asia. So from the south, again, there's Sri Lanka, the island in the Indian Ocean. Then as you get to the southern tip of India, there is Kerala on the far southwestern edge and Tamil Nadu, the Tamil-speaking region in the southeast. And then as you proceed just slightly further up, you get more provinces like Karnataka in the west and Andhra Pradesh in the east. And that word Pradesh is used for many regions. It's a Sanskrit word that basically means province or parish very closely related to those European words. Then if we turn to the west, along the west coast, there is Maharashtra, which is the region where the major city of Mumbai is located, then Gujarat, Sindh, and finally Baluchistan. And as you proceed up along the west coast, it becomes more and more arid as you go. Then in the interior, just above those coastal regions like Gujarat and Sindh, there is the large region called Rajasthan, or the royal province, which is also relatively dry. Then if we turn back to the middle of South Asia, in the central plateau, most of the central plateau is taken up by a a region called Madhya Pradesh, or the middle province, right? So Madhya, again, central or middle, just like you'd hear in a European language. Then if we proceed up to the Indo-Gangetic Plain, 
as I said, there's that long arc running along the Indus River in what's now Pakistan. It then turns eastward and runs through the region called Punjab, meaning the five rivers. So that's in a sort of hilly region on the edge of India and Pakistan, where there are five rivers that flow then into the Ganges. So if we continue eastward into the Gangetic Plain, there is firstly Uttar Pradesh, meaning the upper province, and that is a very fertile and densely populated region that includes the cities of Delhi, New Delhi, and Agra. It's been a traditional power center of India. And then you continue down the Ganges into the eastern Gangetic Plains. And the main large region you have there is Bengal, which includes basically the entire country of Bangladesh and also the province of West Bengal in India. And that contains the major city of Calcutta. And then around it, there are smaller provinces, including Bihar, Odisha and Assam in the farthest eastern end of India. And all of those provinces, again, tend to be lush, green, and riverine. And finally, if we continue up beyond the Indo-Gangetic Plain, you have the great chain of the Himalayas. And the provinces there, there are many strings of small, fairly isolated mountain provinces along the slopes. But some major ones include Jammu and Kashmir in the far north, which is sometimes disputed between India and Pakistan. And then larger areas, some of which are today independent countries, such as Nepal and Bhutan and also Indian province of Sikkim. And as you continue past Bhutan, you eventually get to the borders of Burma and Southeast Asia. So that is a basic rundown of the geography and the different parts of India. So why does all of this matter? Well, India is a remarkably productive and also diverse and multivarious region of the world. So historically, India tends to produce the same sort of patterns seen in other fertile regions like China and Europe, where you have cycles of unification with power being consolidated in a central core, usually in the Indo-Gangetic plain. But these power centers or capitals in the Indo-Gangetic plain are very vulnerable. It's a low-lying flat area, and hence it can be challenged and usually is challenged eventually and even overthrown by internal fractures or by external forces, attacks coming from the north or the west. And so there's a cycle where power centers might be built up, then they're overthrown, you go into a period of fragmentation and localization until a new power arises and unifies again. And so the cycle continues. And what we're going to do now is trace how this cycle began and over time led to a lasting civilization with its own distinct customs, traditions, shared identity. And this consolidation happened partly through the development of Hinduism, in quotation marks, right? a sort of collection of beliefs, practices, teachings that you can put under the heading of religion, again, in quotation marks. But that is a very complicated process that happened alongside the political process of the development of power and of a consolidated civilization. So I'm going to leave that question of Hinduism, of what exactly is it, how did it come about, for another lecture. And now I'm going to start just by talking about the political development.
So India is a site of fairly early human habitation. It was one of the first places that Homo sapiens inhabited after Africa. So you might remember in my lecture a long time ago on human prehistory, I talked about how the Homo sapiens species developed and separated out from other species like Homo erectus in Africa and basically distinguished themselves as the long distance travelers, the walkers and runners who could go long distances around Africa. And then somewhere around 75 to 80,000 years ago, a small group of these Africans were able probably to raft across the lower end of the Red Sea and cross into the Arabian Peninsula. And from there, their descendants gradually migrated eastward along the coast of Asia and eventually reached Southeast Asia. And there's a lot of rich surviving evidence, including cave art, from those early human inhabitants in Southeast Asia in places like Borneo. But we know they must have gotten there by traveling along the coast through similar climate regions along the southern edge of Asia. And some of them definitely lived for a long period of time in southern India. And there is some surviving evidence and things like tools and evidence of campfires from about 50 to 70,000 years ago in India. But the dense forest, the tropical conditions, the rise of later civilizations means that not very much of that evidence survives. We know very little about them compared to their ancestors in Africa or their descendants in Southeast Asia. Eventually, also, Homo sapiens did move northward into different climate zones in India and left in some places more rich evidence of their lives there. For instance, a lot of artifacts and some very early cave art and rock art have been found in the central plateau in what's now Madhya Pradesh. And there's a particular accumulation of rock art and cave paintings from thousands of years around the rock shelters of Bimbetka, an important archaeological site in Madhya Pradesh. And they include rock paintings mostly in red ochre that show animals like horses, cows, and elephants. And in that way, it's very similar to early human art that's been found in Africa, in Indonesia, and in Europe. But they also show a significant number of human figures, including warriors and hunters with bows and arrows. So we know a little bit about their lifeways and their technology. So this sort of society, based mainly around hunting, existed clearly for thousands of years. But eventually there was an early appearance of agriculture in South Asia, way over in the western end, in that region called Baluchistan, which is today part of Pakistan. And it seems that around 8,000 years ago, people in Balochistan began to practice farming and herding. And a lot of that, it's unclear how much of it was simply learned and imported from other places like Mesopotamia or how much was invented locally in Balochistan. But it seems that they did invent some important new domesticated varieties of their own, including of cotton and some types of wheat, and they also domesticated cattle. And so from very early on, cattle have been an important basis of life in India. And in particular, a major site of Neolithic farming was a cluster of towns at a site called Mergar. 
And it seems that this village area also became an important trading site, and they traded a great deal of shells and minerals, sometimes long distances to places like Persia and Mesopotamia. And their practices of plant and animal domestication and farming slowly spread westward through much of India, especially into the Indo-Gangetic Plain, that sort of flat, fertile area in northern India. And eventually, as population grew from these greater food surpluses, the ancient era, the first ancient civilization in India began. And this is what we customarily call the Indus Valley Civilization, and it's an important pillar of the Bronze Age world. So around 3300 BC, some large towns began to form, mainly along the Indus River, It seems as if they started at first as seasonal settlements where mountain farmers would, for part of the year, move down into these river valleys. And they grew dramatically then and became major permanent towns after about 3000 BC. And we don't know why, but probably it related to drying of the climate where the monsoon rains didn't water that whole Indus Basin as much as they had before. And so people who had been relying on farming and shepherding in the hills started to turn more towards reliance on irrigation of the river waters along the Indus and other rivers. And they grew crops like rice, millet, and beans in the hot season, and then wheat, barley, and peas in the cool season. So they took the greatest advantage possible of the cycle of different seasons. And around 2700 BC, major cities emerged. And the two largest ones we call Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro although those were not the original names of the cities. We don't know what their actual names were. Those are just names that have been assigned to these sites by later archaeologists. And it seems that at the height of the civilization, Harappa grew at its peak to around 60,000 people and Mohenjo-Daro to about 30,000. And there were also smaller towns and cities scattered all around the Indus Basin with roads and in some places canals connecting them. Archaeologists also sometimes call this civilization Sintu Sarasvati after the rivers that it grew up along or Harappan after the biggest site. It can also just be called the Indus Valley Civilization. But again, we don't know what word or name they may have used for their own society. It reached its height around the period from around 2600 BC to 1900 BC, and it featured large planned cities with regular blocks, thousands of buildings, including homes mainly made of baked brick. There wasn't a great source of stone or timber, so it was mainly baked brick. And they featured very sophisticated hydraulic systems with freshwater channeling and drainage, as well as public reservoirs and possibly bathhouses, large granaries for communal stores of grain, and so-called citadels, which were sort of central complexes of non-residential buildings, really of unknown use. It's unclear whether they were military or ceremonial, but these cities did not have any large palaces or temples like you would see in Babylon or Egypt or even Greece. It's unclear what sort of social hierarchy or social system they used. These various cities were connected by trade routes, 
and they used river boats and wheeled bull carts. This was not deduced until fairly recently, but it is very possible that this was the first society in the world to use wheeled vehicles. And significantly, these various sites around the Indus Valley had very similar material culture. There's a great consistency in the styles of pottery, metal goods, which were mainly made of bronze and sometimes lead, Also similar toys and miniatures, artistic statuettes, gold and beaded jewelry, and so-called stamped seals, sort of carved steatite blocks with figures in them that might have been seals or markers. And there was some artistic decoration, mainly with animal figures, but it's unknown whether this was religiously significant or not. The stamp seals mainly feature aurochs, or Asian cattle with large horns, and also short strings of signs or symbols. So there's a remarkable consistency across these towns and cities, but again, there's a lack of monumental buildings. So it's very mysterious how this society worked. Was it perhaps egalitarian, with no sort of upper caste of kingly or priestly figures? And was it a single state or many small states? The remarkable uniformity suggests a united system, but there doesn't seem to be a clear capital with a power center. So it's really unclear how this world worked. But we do know that it became a major civilization of the Bronze Age, trading extensively with Egypt, Mesopotamia, Canaan, and even Greece. There have been some Indus Valley seals found in Babylon, in Mesopotamia, and it was integrated into what we call the Bronze Age world system, a sort of system of trade and diplomacy that held up the stability of these various interconnected civilizations and supplied them with goods like copper or other minerals or hides or grain that they wanted. So in this way, it had a lot in common with other societies like Mesopotamia and Egypt. But geographically, it was larger in area. It was the biggest, the most extensive, and it ran about 900 miles up along the Indus Valley and also far down the coast of India into what's now Gujarat and Maharashtra. And the total population might have been about 4 or 5 million people. Part of what's so remarkable about the Indus Valley is that it was totally unknown and lost to history until the 1830s when Indian and British archaeologists began to discover the remains of the foundations of Harappa. So how could it have been completely forgotten from history for thousands of years? Well, partly it's because it was so early. So there are fewer surviving references to it or evidence of it in these other societies because it was so early and it collapsed so early. It also had very little or no writing. Again, these Indus Valley seals are very mysterious. It's disputed whether they even count as a writing system or not. And even if so, it's undeciphered. And it collapsed dramatically in the second millennium BC and left behind very little remains or continuity to later societies. So these are all reasons why it sort of fell into a black hole of history. We still do not know what their government was, what their religion was, their laws, even their language. 
We don't know what language they spoke or if it was even a single language or not. Some have theorized that their language may have been a Dravidian language, and that's a language family that still survives and is spoken in the far southern end of India. For instance, Tamil, spoken in the southeast of India and in Sri Lanka, is a Dravidian language. So that is one prevalent theory, but we don't know for sure. And there are, as I said, these short inscriptions in the so-called Indus Valley script, but it is still undeciphered. And some argue that they are pictographic or logographic, that the symbols represent words. Others think that they're purely symbolic. But even if so, does that count as language or not? It's all up in the air. So I expect that I may eventually talk in my series Doorways in Time about the great archaeological discoveries. I may talk about the uncovering of the Indus Valley civilization, which is possibly the most momentous archaeological discovery ever made in terms of the scale of what was discovered. But putting that aside, we do know that the Indus Valley civilization fell into fairly rapid decline after about 2000 BC. The city started shrinking rapidly around 1900 BC, and the largest ones were abandoned by about 1700 BC. So after flourishing for six or 700 years, they practically vanished in the course of only about 200 years. And the archaeological finds, the human remains, show that there was a rise in violence and in diseases like tuberculosis and leprosy. There also were signs of social strife. There was vandalism of important sculptures. Jewels and other valuables were hidden away in large hordes, reflecting fear and insecurity. And finally, by the time these cities were really collapsing, there were dead people and animals left in the streets unburied. And the large trade networks connecting the cities broke down, and they were replaced instead by much smaller and localized networks among small villages and towns. And if you look at the artistic styles, there was a a regional divergence. So instead of this uniformity across the whole Indus Valley sphere, instead there were the formation of localized and regional cultures and styles. By 1000 BC, even many of these smaller sites were abandoned. A few of them did persist into later years and continue into later eras of Indian history, but many of them were abandoned and it seems there was a large migration to the south and east into the wetter areas of India. And there also, it seems, was a return to nomadism. Many people who had come from these agricultural and irrigation-based settlements instead changed to nomadic pastoralism. So by 1000 BC, this civilization is, for all intents and purposes, vanished. And a major question, of course, is why? Well, for a very long time, it was thought to be primarily due to Aryan invasion. Again, in scare quotes. So the idea was that the civilization suffered attacks by nomadic people on horseback from the north who stemmed from the Aryan group. So you might remember, I've talked about this a little before, that there was a ethnic tribal group around the Caspian Sea that called itself Arya or Arya. And around 3000 BC, they started rapidly expanding and conquering in several directions, eastward into Central Asia, westward into Europe, and southward 
into Persia and India, these people wrote a series of books, which I'll talk about later, called the Vedas. And the thinking was that these Vedic Indo-Aryan people on horseback attacked and devastated the Indus Valley civilization, destroyed the cities, and forced people to flee. But that explanation is now widely rejected because archaeologically there's very little sign of outside attack on the Indus Valley cities. It seems there was much more internal breakdown. And the Indo-Aryan people, it seems, mostly didn't arrive in this region until about 1500 BC. So that's already two centuries after the major cities were abandoned. So there must be some local or internal explanation for what went wrong in the Indus Valley. And today it's more widely thought that it was due to droughts and climate change. So the monsoon rains started to fall much less on the western part of India. There was desertification, and it might also have then been exacerbated by earthquakes. More broadly speaking, in the bigger picture, the decline of this civilization was part of a much wider Late Bronze Age collapse. So a sort of series of civilizational crises and collapses that swept all through the ancient Near East, Mesopotamia, Egypt, Crete, and was probably triggered by a wave of seismic disasters like volcanic eruptions and earthquakes, followed by disease, and then by the breakdown of trade between these civilizations. So you could think of them as sort of dominoes that had been holding one another up, but then once some of those foundations were pulled away, the whole structure collapsed. And furthermore, it seems, as this Late Bronze Age collapse unfolded in the 1100s BC, a new group of people emerged to take advantage of this weakness. And these were the masters of iron. So there were people who might live in small bands, tribes, small villages, who had mastered ironworking and steel weaponry and could use those effectively against these larger civilizations that were still dependent on bronze weapons. If you use it correctly, iron is stronger than bronze. So certain people took advantage of these weaknesses to prey upon these declining civilizations, and in some cases to take them over and conquer them. So there was a shift around 1100 BC or so from the Bronze Age to what we call the Iron Age. And how did all of this play out then for India? How did, what did impact did this have on India? Well, there was a huge shift of population and power to the south and east into those areas that were more rainy. And as these last remaining towns in the Indus Valley declined, it seems that small cities started to arise on the Ganges River on the Indo-Gangetic Plain further east around 1200 BC, so right around the beginning of what we call the Iron Age. And there was indeed a migration of sometimes warlike Indo-Aryan people coming down from Central Asia. 
And this marks the beginning of what we then call the Vedic Age, this era that we can partly reconstruct or theorize about based on the Vedas, on the writings of these Indo-Aryan migrant people. But it seems that they came in at a time when the Indus Valley civilization was already mostly collapsed and there wasn't all that much violence or direct confrontation. But what can we say about the early Iron Age or the Vedic era, as we call it in India, which went from about 1500 BC to about 500 BC? Well, the Indo-Aryans, as they came southward into the Indus Valley and then into other parts of India, they brought with them several important innovations. One, as I said, is ironworking. Another is horses and horsemanship, which had been unknown previously in India. And this included also the use of chariots for travel and warfare. They brought with them an Indo-European language. So when these early Aryans came into India, they probably spoke something like what we would call uh, Indo-Iranian or maybe Proto-Indic, which then developed fairly quickly in India into ancient Sanskrit. And Sanskrit, although it's part of this Indic branch of the language family, it's still recognizably close to European languages. There are a lot of words like, for example, Raja, which means king, just like rex, later roy or royal in English. So it's a recognizably Indo-European language, but still it developed its own distinct form in India. This is the language in which the Vedas were composed, sort of ancient or Vedic Sanskrit. They also brought with them the worship of a particular pantheon of gods, which are also clearly connected and related to Middle Eastern and European gods. So an important god is Indra, a war god, who's described as riding on a war chariot and throwing thunderbolts, much like, say, the northern European god Thor. And the Dra in Indra might be related to Thor in Norse. Also, Djaus, who is a ruler or kingly god, much like Zeus in Greek or Jupiter in Latin, and other minor gods like Manu and Yama that likewise can be related to their cousins in other parts of the world where Indo-European languages are spoken. Artistically, it seems that the Indo-Aryans made very few depictions of these gods. They were understood as being abstract and representing cosmic or elemental forces. So there's not a lot of artwork or sculpture showing these gods. But they did make elaborate sacrificial offerings, sometimes called shrauta, to these deities. And they composed hymns and verse tales about these gods as part of these ceremonial offerings. And these hymns and stories in verse were then collected into cycles called Vedas, which contain mythology and devotional poems. And as I said, they were written in an early ancient form of Sanskrit. The oldest Veda, it seems, is the Rig Veda, although it was not all composed at a very early moment when these Indo-Aryans were first migrating into India. At least some of it was, but it might have been later elaborated on and embellished through the centuries. And among other things, this Rig Veda does tell of the war god Indra riding a horse-drawn chariot and attacking great fortresses. 
And so it's possible that this might be a dramatized or trumped up version of the memory of the Indo-Aryans migration into the Indus Valley. But again, there's very little archaeology to back up this notion that there was a massive campaign of attacks on the great cities. And also, it's worth noting, there's no evidence of any very large fortification of the Indus Valley cities. So it doesn't really match up with the story in the Rig Veda. Most of these Indo-Aryans first became nomadic pastoralists in northwestern India, in these areas that are now Punjab and surrounding regions. They could take advantage of the sort of grassy and scrubby environment in this drier region. They lived in tribal and clan groups, which were patriarchal and patrilineal, much like you see in Central Asia. But around 1100 BC, many of them also migrated southeastward into the Gangetic Plain, and some began to adopt agriculture in this fertile, flat, largely forested area. And they had a bit of an advantage over other inhabitants of the Gangetic Plain because they were able to clear more forest with their iron axes and plows. Even as they shifted over to agriculture, they still kept up some of the old customs of their nomadic lifeways. For instance, they continued to keep horses, even though horses were not as useful as cattle, oxen, or especially water buffalo in farming this very wet landscape. Nonetheless, they continued to keep horses as symbols of power and status, as a link to their traditions of nomadic kingship, and they maintained trade routes up through Afghanistan into Central Asia in order to get a supply of those good quality horses from Central Asia. So as more and more of these tribes and clans settled and adopted an agricultural lifestyle, some of them started to confederate into larger local states or realms. And it seems that the Sanskrit word for, for this sort of statelet was a Janapada. And the largest of these Janapadas was the Kuru Kingdom, which was centered in the upper Ganges Valley, right around what's now Delhi. So a traditional natural power center of northern India. And the Kuru kingdom started to standardize these sort of evolving Indo-Aryan traditions. They standardized the Shrauta rituals of worship and sacrifice to the gods. They collected and standardized more of the Vedas, which described more of the religion and politics of India. There was the emergence of a distinct Brahmin class of priests, teachers, and poets, who were in some ways of the highest status in society, although they might not be wealthy. They also, it seems, began to codify the Verna system, which divided society into four ranked classes. And there's actually a passage in the Rig Veda, which may have been added in at this later point. It might, it's unclear how old it is. But this passage in the Rig Veda discusses the sort of primal or cosmic man called Purusha. And then it asserts that the different classes of society emerged when this original cosmic man was divided into parts. So the passage says, translated in English, it says, quote, When they divided Purusha, how many portions did they make? What do they call his mouth, his arms? What do they call his thighs and feet? 
The Brahman was his mouth, or both of both his arms was the Rajanya made. His thighs became the Vaishya, from his feet the Shudra was produced. So this myth explains the existence of these four classes, the Brahmin, the priestly class, the, the ceremonial class and the class of teachers comes from the mouth of Purusha. Then his arms become the Rajanya, the kingly class, which also in later centuries is called the Kshatriya, the class of rulers and warriors. Then his thighs became the Vaishya, that's the, the villagers, right? And the, the word Vaishya is related to the English witch, uh, town, village. So these are the tradesmen and artisans. And then his feet became the Shudra, and that's the manual laborers. So you see the sort of foundations of a basic model of society that is probably a fusion of customs from the, the Indo-Aryan nomadic people, the Indus Valley civilization and their surviving customs and lifeways, those of other peoples in the Ganges plain that were then sort of fused together and started to crystallize into what you might call a Vedic civilization. So Kuru was the main powerful Vedic kingdom, but it soon came under attack by non-Vedic tribes. So this is the similar pattern that happens over and over, a lot like in Central Asia, right? People settle down, they start to create an agriculture-based civilization, but they come under attack again from new waves of nomadic people, especially coming down from Central Asia. So it seems that's what happened to Kuru. They came under attack by non-Vedic tribes. They were gradually weakened. And Vedic society basically had to withdraw and move further east into the lower Gangetic plain around what's now Bihar. And also some moved up into the safety of the mountains. And you get a Vedic society in Nepal. So the center of gravity in this way moves eastward, right? Lower Gangetic plain and the Himalayas. And then after about 600 BC, there's a renewed urbanization, a new growth and flourishing of cities, which then soon gives rise to the classical era, the era of great unifying empires in India. So the early classical era begins around 600 BC, when there's a great deal of population growth, stabilization around small urban centers, especially in the north, in the Ganges Valley. And eventually there emerged a series of 16 so-called Mahajanapatas, or great kingdoms, or great realms. And these different Mahajanapatas shared certain common customs, common languages of trade and diplomacy, a diplomatic code, all of which allowed for a certain degree of coexistence throughout this kind of emerging civilization. There was widespread power and influence of the Brahmin class and of the Vedas, and this continued all the way eastward as far as Bengal. And this sort of society can be seen as fairly similar to the Greek city-states at the same time. Sometimes they've even been referred to as the Moria city-states. And there's a similar mix of different governments, some more monarchical or despotic, some more republican, even democratic in some places. But they all nonetheless recognized one another as civilized neighbors, much like the Greek city-states recognized one another as Hellenes as opposed to the barbarians outside the fold who did not speak Greek. There was a certain degree of cultural 
evolution and standardization, especially around 500 BC. So the Sanskrit language had changed over the years, especially as people adopted agricultural and urban life. And this new form of Sanskrit was then intentionally standardized and codified by scholars into what we now call classical Sanskrit, as opposed to the older ancient or Vedic Sanskrit. And classical Sanskrit was a shared language of literature and diplomacy. There also was the emergence of new philosophies, different sorts of mystical or metaphysical philosophies that to one degree or another de-emphasized the Vedas and the worship of the gods. And these philosophies were called Shramana, and they took various forms, but there were two particular ones that were especially successful. One was Buddhism, which reportedly was invented by Siddhartha Gautama, who was an aristocratic young gentleman from the Shakya Republic in Nepal, and who was troubled and disturbed by suffering, by old age and death, and who sought out enlightenment and freedom from the sort of suffering and pain of the cycle of life and death. And he taught a series of doctrines involving the negation of the of desire and of the ego in order to reach enlightenment, also called nirvana. And also around the same time, there developed another philosophy that in some ways was similar called Jainism. And this developed in Bihar. So whereas Buddhism began from the Himalayas and came southward, Jainism developed in that traditional core around Bihar in eastern India. And it does not have a single founding figure like Buddhism, but a preacher called Mahavira is considered the sort of great promoter of this new philosophy. And Jainism, like Buddhism, also believes in reincarnation, which continues in a sort of cycle of suffering until one reaches enlightenment. But it is more ascetic and preaches strict nonviolence, strict vegetarianism. And so both of these philosophies, Buddhism and Jainism, rejected the authority of the Vedas and sacrifices to the gods, and hence it challenged the authority of the Brahmins, who derived their sort of special role from that Vedic belief system. So there was a certain degree of competition here among all three, right? Among sort of Vedic Brahmanism, Jainism, and Buddhism, again with Jainism being the most strictly ascetic and promoting a sort of lifestyle of poverty and, and self-sacrifice. Nonetheless, by about 400 BC, you could see a great deal of commonality among these different societies all around the Ganges Plain and the Himalayas. These nonviolent philosophies gained a lot of widespread influence, even in places where they were not widely adopted or didn't displace Vedic Hinduism. And so there was a certain degree of stability you could see all through this Indian world. But there also was a necessary instability. It could not be sustained forever. The balance of power among these Mahajanapadas could not stay in place eternally. There was a situation much like the same situation in Greece, where eventually one state would be able to press some advantage, whether it was in wealth or population, and start to overcome smaller neighbors, and then further exploit and press that advantage until the balance of power fell apart and one state 
uh, took over and dominated the rest, just as the Athenians and then the Macedonians came to dominate Greece. Likewise, one particular state rose to hegemonic power in India, and it happens that it was Magadha, which was a kingdom in the eastern Ganges Valley, around what's now Bihar. Magadha was ruled by a long series of royal dynasties, but the first one to really build up regional power was the Haryanka dynasty, which ruled in the 500s and 400s BC. So this process was already happening early on. It was starting in the early classical era. And the Haryankas built up a fortified capital called Pataliputra around 490 BC. The exact date is unclear. And they continued to rule until they were overthrown in a popular rebellion, which transferred power to a new dynasty, the Shaishunaga dynasty, in 421 BC. And they continued to build on this sort of expansive policy of the Haryankas until they were overthrown and replaced by a new dynasty, the Nanda, in 345 BC. And the Nanda were the ones who really then struck out for regional dominance. They extended Magadhan rule over most of eastern India. They instituted efficient centralized administration to take advantage of these territories. They reportedly built up great wealth but were unpopular due to the high taxes that they levied. They fostered trade and diplomacy far to the west, including with Persia, Babylon, and even Greece. So like the Indus Valley civilization, this early Nanda Empire was able to kind of start to reintegrate India into these massive Eurasian networks. But their rise was disrupted in the 320s BC when Alexander the Great and his Greek and Macedonian army suddenly invaded India from the west. So there had been some small incursions by Persian emperors like Darius over into the Indus Valley, but there had never been a sort of massive juggernaut invasion from the west like this before. And Alexander crossed the Indus River and invaded Punjab, so getting right into the middle of that core Indo-Gangetic plain. In 326 BC, he won a victory at the massive Battle of the Hydaspes against King Porus, who was a ruler in Punjab. So it seemed for a moment like this invasion might be unstoppable, but Alexander's army mutinied and re refused to go any further into India. So the Battle of the Hydaspes, they had won, but it was very costly and difficult crossing the river and fighting against an army with war elephants. And they learned from local people that there was a, a massive realm with a very powerful ruler further to the east, and that was the Nandas, who could summon a much greater army with more war elephants. So the army refused to go further, and Alexander was forced to withdraw back to Babylon and put his power base there, and he died soon after. And after he died, various generals of his army set up small sort of warlord statelets around what had been Alexander's empire. And this included small sort of kingdoms and principalities in the Indus Valley. So the threat of, of Alexander's invasion actually forced a new unification that then led to the high classical era and the first real empires of India. 
So the threat of Alexander forced small states and tribes in the West that were outside of Nanda control to rally together and consolidate. And this unification was spearheaded by a brilliant statesman and strategist named Chanakya. And Chanakya is a mysterious person. He's of unknown origin. We don't know exactly when he was born or where. And there are various conflicting legends about him that were told many years later. But there are some common patterns in the story of Chanakya in these different legends. He was a Brahmin, it seems, a member of this priestly caste, but he was poor, as some Brahmins were. He was perceived as important or possibly of royal lineage because he was born with a full set of teeth, which many people around the world take to be a sort of supernatural or divine sign that marks someone out as important. He reportedly went at one point to the capital, the Nanda capital of Pataliputra, in order to receive alms from the Nanda king. That was a normal thing for poor Brahmins to do, to ask for alms, and the Nanda king was especially rich and powerful. But he was turned away, and the king somehow insulted him, called him ugly or something like this. And so Chanakya and the king got into a fight. Chanakya had to flee out of the palace and fled westward into the sort of forests and plains to the west. And there he began to gather supporters and money and to plot a possible revenge against the Nanda emperor. In this time, he took under his wing a young man, a youth named Chandragupta, or sometimes he's called by his full name Chandragupta Maurya who was just an obscure person, but Chanakya saw him playing a war game with his friends and recognized his strategic talent. And so he took him on as kind of a student and protege, took him far to the west to the town of Taxila, up at the far upper reaches of the Indus. And he mentored Chandragupta and prepared him for war and rulership. Finally, in 322 BC, Chanakya and Chandragupta invaded the Nanda territory with their army of supporters, captured the capital of Pataliputra, and overthrew the Nanda emperor, and established Chandragupta on the throne as the first emperor of the Maurya dynasty. They then rapidly conquered westward, consolidating most of northern India across the whole Indo-Gangetic belt. They even proceeded even further west across the Indus and defeated the Seleucid Persian regime based in Persia and took territory west of the Indus. So this was now a much greater empire than had ever been seen in South Asia. After Chandragupta, the successors in the Maurya dynasty in the late 300s and early 200s BC fostered stability, trade, and prosperity in their realms. They built an extensive road system, importantly including a grand trunk road running from Pataliputra, the old capital in the east, all the way to Taxila on the Indus Valley in the far northwest. So there was now a sort of unifying network of roads and rivers that could be used to cross the entire empire east to west. The population of the empire grew to somewhere around 20 to 25 million people. And they had extensive diplomatic and cultural exchange with the West. And there was a Greek-speaking population. If you remember Alexander, after the breakup of his empire, 
it left behind sort of Greek and Macedonian colonists in places like the Indus Valley. So there was this Greek population left over who then could act as intermediaries using the Greek language and diplomatic contacts to foster trade and exchange with civilizations to the West. At the same time, however, South India, south of the Central Plateau, was still unconquered. It was very, it was more rugged territory, the Deccan Plateau, the Ghat Mountains. And so the task of trying to conquer southward and unify all of India was eventually taken up by the Maurya Emperor Ashoka, who came to the throne in 268 BC. And Ashoka engaged in a war with the state of Kalinga, which was one of the larger, stronger states in the southeast of India. And Ashoka won this war in 261 BC, but at enormous cost. It reportedly, the war reportedly killed about a quarter million people, which was tremendous for that time. You know, it would have been like 1% of the whole population of the empire, which is tremendous, but it is possible. If it was a long, brutal, drawn-out war in the hills and mountains, it might have killed that many people. And reportedly, Ashoka was devastated and horrified by the destruction, and he embraced Buddhism. So remember, Buddhism had been around now for at least 200 years. It had come out of the north, it had spread, and it had become, you could say, a kind of cosmopolitan belief system of the sophisticated, literate people of the great cities. But it was not an official religion until Ashoka embraced it, gave it state support, And over the next 29 years, for the rest of his reign, Ashoka promoted Buddhism. He undertook a campaign of building shrines and stupas, or sort of local monuments for prayer and meditation. And he sponsored monasteries and sponsored missionary monks to bring Buddhism out to neighboring countries, including northward into Central Asia and south to Sri Lanka. He also erected, throughout his enormous realms, he erected so-called Ashoka pillars, tremendous monumental pillars with lion capitals, and often long inscriptions declaring Ashoka's power and authority and Buddhist doctrines. So he saw his power, his legitimacy, and Buddhism as going hand in hand. And the later years of Ashoka's reign were the height of Maurya power, And the empire didn't last for very long after his death. So it went into fairly rapid decline. In 184 BC, the last Maurya emperor was assassinated and overthrown by his military general named Pushyamitra Shunga. And this is a common thing. It's like what happened in the Roman Empire, where as the the empire destabilizes, comes under attack, generals have to assert more and more power and authority until eventually they just take the liberty of killing the emperor and taking the throne for themselves. So Pushyamitra Shunga established the Shunga dynasty, which was able to hold on to power in the east, in that traditional core area, but lost control of the West, and the Western Indian lands fragmented, leading to a period of feuding states. And importantly, in 180 BC, so just shortly after the end of the Maurya dynasty, the Indo-Greeks declared independence and set up their own independent kingdom in the Indus Valley, basically occupying the upper Indus Valley and into Afghanistan. 
and they were followed in later years by a local Indo-Scythian and Indo-Parthian kingdoms in that western area. And basically most of western India, even the southwestern coast, came to be ruled by so-called western satraps, which is a, a Persian term, but it basically meant local rulers and princes who might sometimes pay sort of nominal fealty to the emperor in the east, but were effectively independent. And it was under the rule of these Western satraps that India saw the first arrivals also of Christianity and Judaism. So in the early years, fairly soon after the beginning of the Christian church, some Christian missionaries came to southern India and also small groups of Jews fleeing from the diasporas and the destruction of Jerusalem. So this period of sort of fragmentation and warring states eventually ended in AD 68 when the Kushan Empire was created. So this was a Western empire founded by invading war bands of the UAG tribe, which came down from Afghanistan. So once again, uh, you know, nomadic peoples from Central Asia are able to take advantage of fragmentation and instability. They come down and quickly conquer and unite most of Western India and establish a regional empire. And once again, they act as a locus of trade and communication. They maintain communication and ties with China and actually introduce Buddhism into China. There's also a great growth of philosophy and medicine under the cushions. There's the formation of a school of medicine and surgery called Ayurveda. And after about 200, this cushion empire also broke up into feuding kingdoms. So it didn't last for more than a century and a half. And some of these realms were then raided and attacked and sometimes conquered by Sasanian Persians attacking from the West. And these new dangers from the West then spurred on another unification of India, this time led by the Gupta dynasty based in the East. So who are the Guptas? Well, like Chandragupta Maurya, the Gupta dynasty has obscure and mysterious beginnings. It was reportedly founded in AD 240 by a chieftain named Sri Gupta, but he is obscure. Uh, we don't know exactly where his original domain or base of power was, but it was probably somewhere in the eastern Ganges plain. So he began a dynasty that started to go through the same sort of process as the Nandas of building up regional power, annexing small neighbors. In 350 to 375 AD, there was a series of conquests by the ruler named Samudragupta, and there are various inscriptions recording dozens of defeated rulers and principalities that Samudragupta annexed. He was able to consolidate the north and east of India, but with much of the south still separate, especially that Deccan Plateau, which was most difficult to conquer. And eventually the Gupta dynasty was able to restore a new stability and an era of renewed prosperity. Now India was able to take advantage of improving trade routes and sea navigation and became a major exporter of goods like silk, leather, furs, iron products, ivory, pearls, and spices like pepper. The Guptas also encouraged a return to worship of the Hindu gods and deities. So whereas the Maurya from Ashoka onwards were a Buddhist empire, 
the Guptas were a Hindu dynasty and they returned state support to Vedic worship and the Brahmin class. And there was a resulting decline then in Buddhism and Jainism. Although they did not disappear, they declined under the Guptas. The Gupta dynasty also patronized art, and there was a flourishing of poetry, music, painting, and architecture. In particular, the court poet Kalidasa was especially honored and celebrated, and his works are still read today. And so under the Guptas, India really became the great cultural center of the whole Indian Ocean Basin. So whereas previous states had been connected to Central Asia or Persia, the Guptas also fostered a sort of new oceanic sphere and exerted influence and preeminence over a lot of the Middle East, East Africa, Southeast Asia, all the way to Indonesia. And in fact, Hinduism began to spread into Southeast Asia and places like Bali. In 375, the Emperor Chandragupta II succeeded to the throne. So he's taking this name mimicking the founder of the Mauryas and sort of you could say maybe claiming their legacy for his dynasty. And Chandragupta II ruled until 415, and his reign was arguably the golden age of Gupta India. He was able to pacify various warlike tribes in the north, in the Himalayas and the upper Indus Valley, that had been harassing and impeding trade with the rest of Asia. Incidentally, among those tribes that he defeated was the Hunas, who are probably closely related to the so-called Huns, who were invading Europe at the same time and would cause you know, death and destruction in Europe in the 400s. So this pacification allowed for more pilgrimage and travel, especially from China. And this was significant because Buddhism was growing in China, had been for centuries at this point. And so learned men, philosophers from China were interested in making pilgrimages to India and visiting the sacred sites around India. And some of them then wrote and recorded their observations of Indian civilization. And one of them in particular, named Fashian, visited India between 405 and 411 AD. So he made a six-year journey through India. And he wrote about his observations, including his visit to the city of Mathura, which was a cultural and artistic capital in what's now Uttar Pradesh, in the sort of middle upper Ganges Valley. And this is how he described Mathura. He said, quote, The people are numerous and happy. They have not to register their households. Only those who cultivate the royal land have to pay a portion of the gain from it. If they want to go, they go. If they want to stay on, they stay on. The king governs without decapitation or other corporal punishments. Criminals are simply fined according to circumstances. Even in cases of repeated attempts at wicked rebellion, they only have their right hand cut off. The king's bodyguards and attendants all have salaries. Throughout the whole country, the people do not kill any living creature, nor drink any intoxicating liquor, nor eat onions or garlic. End quote. So this is a really interesting passage. It's probably an extreme idealization of what Fashian saw in India, where he's trying to depict a sort of ideal Buddhist, nonviolent, free society under a peaceable and humane ruler, because maybe that's what he wanted to see uh, in China. 
But nonetheless, there are certain things he points out, like no capital punishment and the widespread vegetarianism. It certainly was not true that throughout the whole country, nobody killed a living creature. That's surely an exaggeration, but vegetarianism had taken hold and it continues to be very widespread and common among people of all different faiths in India. So this scene in Mathura, what you see is a city that, although it was under the rule of a Hindu dynasty, it continued to be largely Buddhist and you can see the influences, the the nonviolence, the vegetarianism from Buddhism and Jainism that pervaded much of the country and continued to be deeply embedded uh, in Indian civilization. So this may be, you know, an idealized portrait, but arguably there was a remarkable golden age here in northern India in the early 400s. But this would not last forever, right? After about 455, the Huns began to attack again. So this danger of nomadic people on horseback, attacking, taking advantage of this difficult, indefensible position in the middle of the Gangetic Plain. This began again, and in the later 400s, there was increasing raiding from the north and west that gradually weakened the empire, and they lost control of much of the west by 469. As a result, export trade routes were disrupted, and cities that had depended on this east-west trade from India to other societies went into decline. So there was clear decline throughout the empire by 500, and then a series of floods and invasions effectively destroyed the empire. And the last known Gupta emperor, so the last person to claim that title of emperor from the Gupta dynasty, died in 550. The empire was effectively over, And it was replaced by various local ruling dynasties around the region that were more or less able to keep the peace. There was not a descent into total chaos. It was not a complete catastrophe. But the prosperity and the cultural flourishing was greatly diminished. Nonetheless, there were advances. So now the Brahmin class in particular was widely very literate, very well-read and informed in various different philosophies from India and beyond. And there continued to be great advances in fields like astronomy and mathematics. And in the 600s, the mathematician Brahmagupta is credited with inventing the zero. The idea of a placeholder and place value began among these Indian mathematicians and would, of course, then spread west and revolutionize mathematics in the Middle East and Europe. In the 700s, there also then was the rise and flourishing of Hindu mystical and philosophical schools. New philosophers, new schools, and sometimes organized into monasteries grew at this in this period after the breakup of the Gupta Empire. And in particular, there was a flourishing of a philosophical movement called Vedanta, which had existed before but really reached a new power and influence in the 700s, led by a philosopher named Adi Shankara. And Vedanta is significant because it sought to integrate spirituality and metaphysics, which had been associated with Buddhism, with worship of the Hindu gods and study of the Vedas. So Vedanta at root means commentary or analysis of the Vedas. So you can see Vedanta as sort of a fusion of traditional Hinduism and Hindu 
worship together with the sort of philosophical speculation about the soul and enlightenment that had been going on in Buddhism and Jainism. So I mention this because in a way you can see this as capping off the creation of a belief system that we can now call Hinduism. But how this came about, how a Hindu synthesis was carried out that integrated together different belief systems, philosophies, practices, gods, heroes, epics, into what we today think of as a religion, in quotation marks. That's something that took hundreds of years and happened alongside all of these political developments of the rise and fall of the Maurya and the Gupta, the flourishing and then diminishment of Buddhism. So that's a whole story unto itself, which hopefully I will get into later. So if you haven't, please subscribe to hear what comes next. And if you want to hear the patron-only materials, including my discussion of the discovery of the Nakamadi Library and the Gnostic Gospels, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description and become a supporter at any level. Thank you.